Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Zach. Good morning, Cliff. It's 1.50 a.m. and the Cyber Jockey and the Z-Man are at the RIA, Restoration Industry Association, Fall Conference in Orange County, Garden Grove, California. Zach and I are dedicated to doing the show for you and what we're trying to do is get one in the can before we fly back to Pittsburgh tomorrow. Uh, We're going to have some live interviews. Zach and I are going to make some comments and we're also going to bring back a couple of our greatest hits from past shows. There was some optimistic news today about the wildfires. Apparently, firefighters have turned the corner and are beginning to get the blaze under control. You know, you see it on television, and it's a lot different than flying over it. What do you think, Seth? Oh, it's definitely way different than flying over it. On my flight in here, they brought us out to sea and turned us around, the smoke was just coming up off the ground, like all the way up to where the airplane was, like 30,000 feet. And they brought us in for a nice hazy landing in uh, Orange County. And as soon as I stepped off the plane, I could smell smoke. Yeah, smoke's definitely in the air. Our hotel's approximately 50 miles away from where the fire is at and you can definitely smell smoke when you go outside. The restoration industry, particularly those that do fire restoration, I'm going to have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of smoke odor out here that's going to need to be dealt with and fire-related particulate. Oh, definitely. And in fact, the uh, the lady that I was sitting next to on the airplane, she was looking out the window on the flight down here and you know, during the approach and she uh she was commenting about about the fire and the devastation and I felt so bad telling her that the ironic purpose of my visit which is for the Restoration Industry Association's fall conference. Today's show is abbreviated because Zach and I had a lot of responsibilities at the RIA conference. A major attraction at the RIA fall conference was the end game for the Donnybrook Battle of Drying Technologies. Speaking of drying, Zach, let's go back in time and get some of the basic concepts of drying from Brandon Burton from a previous episode. What's the word dehumidify mean? Well, you know, a lot of people misinterpret the term dehumidify. Now, if you look at it from the textbook standpoint, dehumidify means to reduce the air's moisture content. And there's really lots of ways to tackle that definition. You know, whether you do it mechanically by physically removing water from an airstream and returning that same airstream or simply grabbing a separate air mass that has, you know, less moisture in it. It can actually mean a couple of different things. Well, hang on a second there, Brandon. We're on the radio here. Let me... Let me go back for one one moment. We kind of have to visualize this. Uh, could you go back over there for just 
give me a little more of a visual on what we're talking about. Absolutely. You know, all all air that we deal with naturally is it's going to have some moisture in it. Okay. You know, it's an important component of air. And when we say dehumidify, if you just kind of break that word down, basically we're talking about taking humidity and making it less. And there are a couple of ways to make that happen. You know, you can take air and use a refrigerant dehumidifier, a desiccant dehumidifier. You can use a system that literally pulls moisture out of that air. That would be dehumidify in probably its simplest sense. But you can also simply grab air from somewhere else that is less humid, that's drier, and replace air that's more humid. That's so, another form of dehumidification. Is it uh, Can drying equipment be used also when we're looking at new construction and, and people are concerned about uh, whether or not the building's ready for finished materials? Absolutely. In fact, you know, the application of the standard equipment that we have in our industry and in new construction provides a lot of different benefits. But just primarily for the, the area that you've just hit on, ensuring that you're not trapping excess moisture in the building materials during the construction process adds a tremendous amount of benefit. A, you know, if, if you have a lot of structural components that are sitting outside, they're exposed to the elements, and especially, you know, in the, the Washington State area out here, our buildings get rained on a bit while they throw them up. You know, it's, it's a good idea to get rid of that moisture. You know, as, as we heard on the, with the first guest, you know, you really can't guarantee that you're not going to have a microbial problem if water exists. If you don't get that moisture out of those materials, they're going to start breaking down, degrading, and microbial growth mold growth is just a, a part of that mechanism. So you've got to get the moisture out of those materials. And we're actually we're seeing a lot of a lot of requests for information on that particular uh, area of construction here recently. The air mover is the simplest piece of equipment that a drying contractor will use, but at the same time it's the most misunderstood. You know, a lot of people think that by blowing air at a wet surface you're going to dry that wet surface, and that's not necessarily true. An air mover uh, is kind of an interesting conflict in what a lot of us believe. An air mover doesn't dry anything. It really doesn't. Uh, the, the air mover plays two critical roles in the drying effort. First of all, you need the, the air that can dry the surface, that's warm enough, that's dry enough. You need that air to be where the water is. And the air movement is a vehicle, a transport mechanism, if you will, to vehicle to put that air there. So that's one real critical role that it plays. The second role is very similar. When you have a wet surface, water is evaporating. You know, it's trying to come up into the air mass around it, there, the air around it. And as it does that, an air mover sweeps that evaporating moisture away. So it becomes kind of like the blender in the environment, taking the humid air at the surface and getting it up and taking the dry air that's around you and putting it at the surface. Brendan, I've got a text message from a Jerry Walker of mm -hmm. New York City. He'd like to know, what is a desiccant? What is a desiccant? It's a good question. A desiccant dehumidifier, the easiest way to understand what that machine is, is it's a magnetic dehumidifier for moisture. It's using just some really easy to think of uh, analogies there. Instead of using a cold surface like a refrigerant dehumidifier does, like a soda can that's cold sitting on your counter on a hot 
humid day, a refrigerant dehumidifier just condenses water on a cold surface. What a desiccant does is it uses, and here's a technical phrase here, but it uses a low chemical vapor pressure. Basically, it's like a magnet for moisture, and it attracts water to its surface. So you don't have to get something really cold and create condensation. Uh, the benefit behind that is that if you imagine a magnet going into a bucket of thumbtacks, it doesn't matter what else is going on. If there are thumbtacks in that bucket, the magnet's going to get a thumbtack out of that bucket. So a dehumidifier doesn't, a desiccant doesn't care how much water's in the air. No matter what, it's going to be pulling some moisture out of that air, which gives it the ability to operate in extremely low humidity conditions and still pull more water. You know, it's, it's like the, uh, the low gear, the compound low gear on a large truck. That's what a desiccant is. It's going to keep moving, not pulling massive amounts of water, but it's going to keep moving no matter how, how heavy the load is. It's always going to give you some performance. Brandon, what do you think are the greatest areas where the industry needs improvement today in terms of practices? That's, that's a very, very open question with lots of answers, Cliff. I'll probably take, the I'll most, take them. <laughs> <laughs> probably, you know, probably the most important response to that question, in terms of practices, I'll focus first on, on the guys actually in the field doing the work. We need more training and more education. You know, it doesn't matter what else we, we know in the industry if we're not training our people on it, we're not practicing it, we're not becoming proficient with it, then it doesn't turn into an industry strength. So training is critical. You know, people need to be making a routine effort in their in their own businesses, uh, from not only just from the restorer standpoint, but everybody involved in this industry. We need to continue our training and development. So that's probably number one. Uh, from there, you know, we'd mentioned a little bit of you know the specifications, the numbers on equipment. That's another real critical one. And let me just give you a real brief example on this. You know, if a manufacturer says that a piece of equipment removes 100 pints of water at an AHEM condition, but they never certify it. They just they take a, a pre-production unit that's optimized, and they find out what water they got out of it, they test it five times and take the biggest number and start publishing that. A restorer is going to go install that piece of equipment thinking that that's what he's getting from it. In reality, he's getting you know maybe 80 pints out of it of water, not 100. That's 20%. Imagine the, the effect of that extra water that's not being removed. Now, in turn, bill the insurance company for a dehumidifier that is removing 100 pints, and really it's only removing 80. You, know, you can think of all the implications that that has, and that's happening in the industry today. So that's an area you know, that, that I'm you know, taking some responsibility for there. We as manufacturers need to set a much better standard and precedence for the information that we publish in the industry. You know, I've gone to your company's website and looked at the variety of things that you sell that go way beyond just dehumidifiers and air movement equipment. So I suppose dryies must think that there are some other things that are important for people to use. Could you comment on some of this additional equipment that should be used? Absolutely, Cliff. There, there's here. Kind of run through the whole range. These are the categories of types of equipment that are really critical to any drying contractor. Obviously, you've got dehumidification. You need something to control uh, humidity in a space. 
then you've got air movement. And in air movement, you need to be able to apply the warm, dry air and the variety of surfaces and the variety of, of hidden cavities that we're going to encounter in structures. So there's a range of air movement that's necessary. Then, because you're blowing air everywhere and dusting a bunch of surfaces as you do it, you need to have the ability to control particulate and dust. You need filtration. You need to have not only filtration on your dehumidifiers to protect them, but filtration for the air and the structure to protect, to protect all of your other contents and occupants, depending on the, especially depending on the type of structure you're in. Then you must have an array of instrumentation. You need to be able to measure the effect of your drying equipment in that environment on humidities, on temperatures, and on moisture contents or moisture levels in materials. You've got to be able to measure all of that. So that must be there as well. Then you need to be able to remove water physically. As Joe had mentioned early in this uh, particular session, you have to be able to get rid of water in its liquid physical form. So you've got to have physical extraction devices. Then you have to have something to control microbial growth when it's necessary. You, know, you need to have antimicrobials, biocides. So a lot of different categories there of, of different tools and equipment that need to be available. While in the exhibit hall at the RIA conference, we had our podcasting equipment set up in our booth, and only one brave soul came up and spoke with us, and that would be guest host Barb Jackson. This is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, from the RIA convention in California, and special guest, the contents queen herself, Barb Jackson. Barb, how are you? Great, Cliff. How are what, you? Good. What's new with the world of contents these days? Oh, it's busy. Um, what we've been concentrating on lately is a lot of design work, uh, warehouse design. So we have some uh, large projects um, on the board. And In terms of warehouse design, what would be the smallest plant that you've ever designed? Um, I've gotten a few phone calls this week. People have um, 2,000 square feet. It's really limited. Um, so that's, I would recommend the smallest would be 4,000 square 4, feet. 4,000 square feet. And what yeah. about the largest one that you've been involved in designing? Um, actually, there's one that's 8,000 square feet, and he, it's part of a 144,000 square foot building, uh, Royal Plus in mm -hmm. Maryland. Where they look at Maryland? Yeah. Okay. And it's a cat loss company that works up and down the East Coast from Key West um, up I guess to Maine. And they're trucking contents back to be restored? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, it yeah, probably makes a whole lot of sense once you have a, I guess you could almost call it a factory for uh, running throughput through exactly. restoration of contents and stuff yeah. like that. So, and, you know, it's all how they market it to the homeowners so that the homeowners are comfortable with their contents being so far away. But, you know, through marketing, um, showing the photographs of the facility and meeting the personnel, then the homeowners feel a lot more comfortable with it. To handle that much work and to you know, be trucking the contents and so on and so forth, have they simplified the estimate, the estimating, you know, by using like box type pricing? So many, you know, so much, so many dollars for different size boxes. Or are they still, you know, kind of doing it by hand and laying it all out? Uh, the itemizing is the best way to do it through Xactimate or POI. Handwriting is really tedious, especially on those large losses. So trying to simplify it is the best way. And then for larger items or more intricate items, then um, detail line item scopes are best to justify the prices. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Um, many of the clients that you have 
some may be new in business and some may be in business for a long time. And I'm sure that more than one of these people has said, wow, when you've told them some sort of technique and so on and so forth. What, what tended to be the biggest wow factor? What are the biggest wow factors that... Um, probably the packing techniques. To actually think about packing on site um, according to categories. I'll give you an example. Um, if we pack too many different types of contents in one box, once they get to the facility, then they have to be routed to different cleaning stations. So what we recommend is packing documents separately and then packing china, um, things that are going to be wet washed or going to the ultrasonics processing or electronics, separating all those things into categories. So that's People just—it's so basic, but people just haven't thought to do well, it's it. It's kind of like in—you know—when I was in the military, we had these laundry bags, and you used to take all your underwear and put them in one bag, and all your socks and put them in another bag. They were these mesh bags, and they would put them in these huge washing machines, and you know mm-hmm. they would know it was mine because I had my dog tag on there, <laughs> and they'd give you your stuff back. So I guess uh, you know there's really a lot to it, and I, I think you know sometimes people just make the same mistakes over and over again they really don't necessarily think about what they're doing and, mm-hmm. and how they're doing it and you know yeah. you've done so many different things and you know you ended up focusing on this because it got your attention and mm-hmm. you kind of liked it and yeah i really enjoy it and yeah it's cool. and it, it's actually it's a niche but so many companies are really seeing the value of going into contents processing. Do you provide a consulting service? If Let's say I had a big job that was maybe a library or something like that. And could I hire you uh, to come Absolutely. in and, and help us uh, you know, you know, price this and estimate it and, and run the job? And right. Everything? I could help to organize it, the project management, and then also the pricing as well. Really cool. Really so. cool. And I can come on site to do that. Um, Hopefully, I'll have an opportunity here on the West Coast to do something like that. It's a good place to be. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening and going on now. Wow, it's it's kind of scary flying over it. You know, you see it on television in the east, and Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't really relate till you're flying, and it's like miles and miles of smoke, and then you you know at the airport it smells, and you know outside of the hotel a little bit. Uh, I think you can smell it in the air, although the air in the I guess the exhibit hall seems to be pretty good. Yeah, and being 50 miles away from the burn area and still being able to smell it, it has to be very severe yeah. and traumatic. And it's interesting hearing on the news what people, if when they have five minutes to go into their home, what it is that they're pulling out. And I think the number one item is photographs. Photographs, absolutely. And just having, you know, thinking ahead, um, we always we never want to think that it would happen to us. But maybe ourselves just thinking, out, how are we saving our photographs and where are our documents? Are they in fire-safe boxes? Are they close to an exit that we can, you know, are they organized enough so that we can retrieve them if we have to leave on short notice? You know, it's something people really don't think about. You know, I think maybe, you know, we're concerned after 911 that there's going to be, you know, some sort of terrorism attack or whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, these natural disasters occur at much greater frequency. You know, the, the thing that you said about photographs, I remember many years ago uh, being involved in a project where we were doing disaster restoration. And there was also, it happened to be an arson situation. And I wasn't sure exactly how they figured it out that it was arson. 
but when you talk about photographs, that's the single biggest clue. The people that are going to set their house on fire take the <laughs> photographs out. Yep, they're And they just go ahead and they burn everything else. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's great. Well, thank you for stopping by. Okay, we'll see my how, pleasure. We'll see how well it comes out. And okay. It's always a pleasure. i got to get a hug before you go. An important part of a water damage which should never be overlooked is the microbial potential. We'll go back in a previous episode and hear what Dr. Felicia Chanjarulo has to say about water-related microorganisms. These terms have come into the water remediation industry as part of a document called the IICRC S500, which is you know water damage remediation standard. And what they've done is they've taken these definitions and they have uh, modified them. Do you... Do you want me to explain where they come from, or? Um, um, yeah, I, I, I would just, if you could do it quickly, that would be fine. Sure. Well, a cl- clean water would come from a broken in wa- incoming water line, overflow of a tub or a sink with incoming water, um, a broken toilet tank. So nothing that has really come into direct contact with human waste. But once it spills, then as it's, you know, reaches the floor, then it has come into contact. Um, gray water is a discharge from a dishwasher, washing machine, aquarium, waterbed, um, toilet bowl with urine only, um, and a sump pump failure. So there's a, there's some organic matter in there, and there's a low level of microorganisms. And then the last one is the black water, and that would include sewage from any type of point and non-point source, um, a toilet backflow f- originating beyond the toilet trap, and any type of flooding. And th- this is there's two things I, I, I would like to uh, to address um, from those water sources, and that is with flooding. You know, when people have a a problem with flooding, um, whoever's doing the remediation really needs to do a good questionnaire for the for the homeowner, because um, when people, you know, when water's in your basement, um, you don't think to look around you. Um, are there ducks? Um, are, there, are there a lot of raccoons? Are there a lot of bats? Um, some microorganisms come from animal waste, like um, cryptosporidium. They come from birds, which is cryptococcus. And um, depending on what's around the home, that can influence, number one, what people brought in with their shoes, and number two, what came in during a flood. And the other thing is that um, a study was done about two years ago in Allegheny County um, where they tested the um, clean, supposedly clean washing machines. And 50% of all washing machines had fecal material in them, which means they had living organisms. So, I mean, that's not a comforting thought. No, no. Because you think when your clothes come out, they're clean, but... Imagine going to the laundromat. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> but, I mean, this is your home, and so, but, but when things back up, you know, the water that was in the bottom of the washer, the whatever the kids brought in on their shoes, what the dog brought in, this is all now part of your... Um, you know, the flora in your home. And um, 
you know, those are things that people never think about. And it's, it, you know, the other thing too is um, when you flush the toilet, it doesn't all go down. <laughs> it goes Worth up. It. You know, I mean, hopefully, I mean, and, and not up and over, but it actually <laughs> goes up into the air. And so all these things can come into play. Well, my my son's in the the studio, and in case the um, lines go dead or the radio goes down, this is probably uh, payback. But what I'd like you to do is venture an opinion on this. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for the potential health risks of this scenario. A young kid clogs and overflows the commode after having a bowel movement. Mm-hmm. I'm sure my kids aren't the only one that have done this. As a matter of fact, both both of my sons have done it on multiple occasions. And I'm wondering about what the potential health risks are. This is something that commonly occurs, and I think maybe people, do they overestimate it or do they underestimate the health risks? Well, I think what you have to be careful of is you can never be too um I don't want to say you have to panic but if you remember that 50% of fecal material contains live organisms and you've just had a, an overflow in the toilet what's the first thing that a person does when the toilet begins to overflow they throw down towels they grab the mop and when it's all cleaned up and then they wash with um maybe Lysol and then bleach and everything smells nice and it looks nice. But That's if it's on towel. What if it's on carpet? Exactly. Right. Well, if it's on carpet, then you know, hopefully they didn't use Clorox. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but at least it, it, you know, it smells nice. And But there's still tons and tons of microorganisms that are there. And being a pathogen simply means that it's an organism that is is not in the correct environment and that it's also at levels that can cause illness for a human being. And for example, what I mean by that is E. coli is a necessary microorganism in our bodies. If we don't have it, we wouldn't be alive. Why? Well, it produces vitamin K, which we don't produce, but and coagulant. Right. And we need that. That's the first thing. And the second thing that it does is um, it it helps us to absorb our food. It breaks down certain uh, food products that we have more difficulty with. And um, the last thing it's involved, it, it's involved in um, B vitamin absorption. So without E. coli, and, and we see this when people take uh, heavy doses of antibiotics, they get stomach problems. And that's because it's also killing off the uh, E. coli, which are good bacteria. In our intestines, they're doing a wonderful job. But when they come out of the intestines and they go back into the digestive tract through the oral route, um, they they become pathogenic because they they produce and uh, um, they produce exotoxins, which um, are are dangerous and they make us violently ill. So um, when someone has a, a backflow in the bathroom, um, I don't think you can be. Uh, you don't. You, you have to be careful about what's what's normal in the body, but now is not where it's supposed to be, and has the potential to divide every twenty minutes, which is what E. coli. That's how quickly it can divide, and. But the other thing that you have to be careful of is 
um, anything that the person harbors in their body is now part of your bathroom. And so if they have a virus or they have an, you know, maybe they have salmonella, now that is part of your bathroom and if not treated carefully, then it has the potential to infect other people in the household. This is Cyber Jockey and the Z-Man signing off at 3 a.m. We got to go to the airport to get on our flight home to Pittsburgh. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 